This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Welcome to Lends Me Your Ears. This is a film podcast where we see something new in cinemas and connect and compare it to older films by the same filmmaker or in the same genre. Sometimes we give love to the work of an actor, a lead, or supporting. My name's Karsten Knox. I'm a film writer and critic. My blog is called Flaw in the Iris, and it can be found at halifaxbloggers.ca. And my name's Stephen Cook, and I'm a multimedia journalist with the Chronicle Herald and the Saltwire Network here in Halifax. Today on Lens Me Your Ears, we are talking about just deserts. Desert movies, movies set in deserts. There's a few new ones, a couple of new ones at least, and we're going back in time to have a look at more and uh, get a little suntan while we're doing it. Uh, That's coming right up here on Lens Me Your Ears. And welcome back to Lens Me Your Ears. I'm Stephen Cook. I'm Karsten Knox. And we're talking about movies set in the desert because right now it's the end of August. It's been a very, very hot summer. And I guess we just felt like watching some movies that made us feel not so bad about the heat that was outside. (laughs) You think it's hot. Try walking across the Gobi Desert or or the Sahara or one of the many deserts featured in these films. But, you know, I would say having spent some time in my ute in deserts in the Middle East, uh, there's a dry heat in a desert. Dry heat, yes. That is not not quite as intense sometimes as the humidity we get here in Atlantic Canada. Um, But, yeah, certainly... Desert movies have always had an appeal for me. And, you know, I think we've talked about The Sheltering Sky here on this show. It's one of my favorite. It's a great desert movie. Going further back, of course, Lawrence of Arabia, maybe one, maybe the greatest desert movie ever. Uh, and I can't deny their romance, um, though almost all the ones we've chosen have kind of that Western characters challenged by deserts, uh, that little bit of colonial hangover, the decay of empire and wars fought in these regions. Um, but... You know, at least the first one we're going to talk about addresses that directly. So, you know, that's cool. Um, But, yeah, it's funny how in some ways some of these films, as much as I enjoyed almost everything we watched, uh, um, uh, they, they haven't aged all that well. Yeah, we didn't really stand back and see the bigger picture of some of the films we chose because we, this is just a fraction of the films that we were kind of thinking about and yeah. talking about. There's there's a lot of films that might instantly come to mind for some listeners that uh, we'll just have to get around to in another show. I'm sure we'll be able to easily do uh, another program on this topic. Well, sure. I mean, we've been saying that for the past three or four episodes. That's true. That's true. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, we didn't do, for instance, The Wind and the Lion. That was one we were talking about, but we would have had to have come up with some... Uh, I mean, how do you even explain The Wind and the Lion to someone who <laughs> yes. who wasn't born when we were born because it has Sean Connery playing, like, uh, an Arab chieftain? Well, <laughs> yeah. Well, if you've seen him play a Spaniard in the Highlander movies, uh, I guess it, you just anything makes sense. Anything makes sense with him. Yeah. He, he was kind of a, a case unto himself. Yes. But, uh, well, let's start with the new feature called The Forgotten. Um, sorry, The Forgiven. Is it The Forgiven? It's The Forgotten. I've forgotten. Is it The Forgiven? <laughs> yes, it's The Forgiven. Not The Unforgiven. I somehow wrote, I, yeah, not The Unforgiven. I somehow wrote down the wrong title. All right, well, it's The Forgiven, directed by John Michael McDonough, written by McDonald, uh, McDonough from a, a novel by Lawrence Osborne. And uh, this very much, you know, takes that trope of the Westerners visiting the desert and coming with all of their 
preconceived notions and class issues and racism and classism and all their their um, you know their posh attitudes. Um, we've got the Hennigers, Joe and David, played by Jessica Chastain and Rafe Fines. They're a brittle and bickering couple. They've arrived in Morocco looking to attend a high society party somewhere out in the desert. Uh, David's particularly unbearable. He's an alcoholic bigot who thinks the worst of everything and everybody. And lost on a dark road, they hit a local with their rented car. Now, the party, when they finally arrive, is in full swing at the home of their friend Richard, played by Matt Smith, who is everywhere these days. He's hosting with his partner, Dally, played by Caleb Landry-Jones. Other attendees include a society writer and photographer, Isabel, uh, played by Marie-José Crozet. And Witty and Louche Tom, played by Christopher Abbott, who could easily be this movie's talented Tom Ripley. I wondered about yes, his kind of him. very similar. Like I wondered, he's so charming, but something somehow very dangerous. Um, so the setup here is a little hard to take. I find I'm all for a scathing teardown of the board and languid classes with a side of colonial cynicism, you know. Uh, Johnny Depp and Prince Andrew both get a smack in this movie. <laughs> but if you're going to hook your audience, you got to make it either funny or gory, I figure. And nothing much happens in the first act to... It, it just makes it too easy, I think, to transfer a distaste for the characters to the movie as a whole. But... Fortunately, the picture gives us something more substantive to consider with the arrival of the, uh, the, the, the boy who's been run down, his father and Moroccan uh, brethren, uh, Ismail Kanater and uh, Saeed, uh, I'm going to pr- mispronounce his name, I'm going to try, uh, Tagmaou, uh, they are standouts, as is Murad Zawi as Richard's housekeeper. These, they, they bring a lot of grit and intensity to, this roles, uh, to, their, to their roles and to the film. Now, the uneasy negotiations over the young man's body and Davis' decision-making kind of takes us into the unknown. This while the party at this place just continues on, unabated. Um, so, yeah, and that's where we're at with this movie. I, I, I think the, the, un, the sort of evolving uncertainty around where it's going and the mysteries of David's journey of atonement is... You know, it's part of what I guess I like most about it. The picture continually re-examines the privilege of the white visitors and the not unrelated struggles of the Arab community to try to improve their lives and, and have a better life. Some of their lives, um, you know, some of that is is uh, is trying to get away from their country. You know, we hear that from some of the locals. Um, and, you know, spending time with these performance, performers is a great thing. It's, it's really wonderful to see these characters... Uh, you know, inhabited by these performers. So I don't know about you, Stephen, but I do find sometimes Caleb Landry Jones is a bit hard to take. Yes. Uh, you know, he's he can be super effective and something like antiviral, but then too often he just seems like a coked up snake in a man suit. Um, but I really enjoy Chastain and Abbott and their sizzling chemistry in this film. Um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a fan of Anglo-Irish filmmaker McDonough. He is, of course, a gifted wordsmith, just like his brother Martin. Um, and uh, I liked uh, John Michael McDonough's last f- picture, the uh, the movie War on Everyone, though I think it's his earlier work that people really regard. The Guard and uh, and Cavalry are the two movies that people mention. Anyway, and relate, relate, related to his best stuff. Um but yeah, what did you make of uh, what did you make of this one? Well, I like McDonough's work a lot. He he has a great way with dialogue uh, and and sort of 
setting you up for expectations that he quickly dashes, which you know, which he has done in the previous films as well, and uh, he does it again here. I, I don't think this is quite as good as The Guard or Cavalry. I'm curious about his next film, uh, which is going to be set in the Australian outback, uh, which maybe that can be our cue to do more desperate <laughs> films because uh, we don't we we talked about some outback films, but we don't go down under uh, for this particular episode. But uh, I, you know, I I did enjoy kind of looking into the world of these characters, even as unlikable as they are. Uh, it, it is interesting to see how the other half lives as it were. And, and to see also the reaction to their, um, you know, perceived decadent, uh, lifestyle or what, what is, uh, I know that, uh, when, um, Ray Fiennes is getting a look to David, he's having a look around Galloway's palace and he calls the whole thing ethnic pretension. Cause of course it's decorated with all these, you know, Arabic knickknacks and trappings and, you know, but with not very much regard for the culture from which they come. And, and, uh, I do like enjoying that clash and, 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 um, you know, hearing the observations of, of people like Hamid and, and, and so on. And, and there's a, there's a lot to, to chew on in this film. And, uh, I feel like, uh, you know, McDonough gives us enough, uh, enough depth for the characters on both sides of the equation to enjoy that. Yeah, and I, I appreciated that Rafe Fiennes, I mean, he is one of the great actors out of the British theater and film in the last 20, 30 years. Um, he, he does sell this idea that his embittered, obnoxious character is driven by a certain amount of guilt and shame. And I think that's what, you know, that's what his big arc is, is that recognition of that. Um, I, I, f- I found that... Uh, that, you know, there's also something kind of uh, a bit of a throwback in the construction of this picture. You know, uh, Hollywood movies that populated cinemas in the 40s and 50s. And that's not a bad thing. You know, I, I that the fact of, uh, it, with the exception of, I guess, that this is actually shot on location rather than, than in a studio somewhere. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I, think, um, I think I would recommend it, uh, I think, mostly for the performances and, and some for the writing. Uh, like you say, I don't know that it actually all holds together. Not completely, but I think the characterizations are strong enough. I mean, Ray Fiennes, I, he has quite a transformation to undergo over the course of the film. And I, I think uh, uh, an actor not of his stature and skill, I think, probably would have dropped the ball you know because mm-hmm. you know it, it has to, the shadings between between the david we meet at the start of the film and, and the david at the end of the film is, is you know it's, it's quite quite a contrast and and uh, i think he has to make a few kind of leaps along the way but he does it quite skillfully and 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 jessica chastain is, is very good as, as this kind of loathsome character you know she's a, a children's author who refers to children as empty-headed clowns <laughs> I, you know and then I think one of the, one of the servants in the palace refers to her as as a gazelle. I think at some point in the film, and and it, you know she's uh, it's it's a very rich uh, persona that she plays here that uh, is kind of kind of against type, but she she clearly relishes the chance to play someone kind of you know icky. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, basically for sure. And I mean, it's not entirely without precedent. She's played sort of characters that have you know, unskirted that line between you love them and you hate them. Uh, and this is her first time we've seen her on screen since her winning the Academy Award for a character that you kind of love and hate. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I think that, um, I think maybe overall this, this is worth seeing. Uh, interesting, it, it has almost no release at all. It got very little press. I think it played at TIFF last year, and then, you know, then it dropped mostly uh, without much ceremony on uh, streaming services. So weird, eh? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I certainly, um, 
I certainly appreciated the uh, the the plot line of uh, the locals who are basically strip mining their own past, you know, for for quick buck, you know, mm-hmm. digging fossils out of the the soil and and um, and you know, making a living by selling them to to um, to tourists and rich uh, passerby and so on. I, I feel like the, the, there's a resonance in that theme that. Uh, is is one of the strong ones for McDonough in uh, in this film, and I, I felt that was really well carried from from start to finish as well. Yeah, oh for sure. Now people can watch uh, the Forgiven, not the Forgotten. We did not forget. I did. I briefly <laughs> forgot, but it's the Forgiven on Hoopla, which of course is the free service through the library system here in Halifax and and many places in the world. Um, so yeah, and you know what the thing I can't deny is watching Rafe Fine squinting in the African sun. <laughs> there is a warm wash of nostalgia to see that. And that's because he's been in a number of films set in Africa. Of course, I'm thinking of The Constant Gardener, the wonderful oh, yeah. uh, spy action thriller um, uh, adapting a Jean Le Carré book. Uh, and that is really worth seeing. But the film that we went back to see is probably the one that... Uh, you know, it's one of his most high-profile films, I guess, early in his career, and that's The English Patient from 1996, directed by Anthony Minghella, written by Minghella, adapting the Michael Andache novel. Uh, now, this literary epic was celebrated when it was first released. It won the Oscar for Best Picture. But in the years since, it's funny. It's been kind of criticized. It's lost a lot of its sheen as a certain kind of movie, that sort of old-fashioned epic that no longer feels relevant. And I guess it didn't help that Seinfeld made fun of it. Elaine hated the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But watching it again, I just found it to be such a pleasure. And I think, I mean, I have a lot of affection uh, for Minghella. He's the filmmaker I maybe miss the most, just as someone who died much too young. He was 54 when he passed away. Um, and he is, of course, the filmmaker behind Truly Madly Deeply, which was is one of my favorite films of all time. And um, this was his third or fourth, I guess, official feature. He, did, he had one film back in his past. It was kind of a student film. But, uh, yeah, and it, it just you wouldn't have known that he had an epic literary drama in him because it does i don't think it shows in his earlier work but he got the funding and he got the support of um andache who i you know who i guess he spoke with and worked with uh, on this script and uh you know he would go and do it again with films like the talented mr ripley and cold mountain but um of those three epics this is the one i felt that was the most moving it has such a talent with his performers and he coaxes these wonderfully naturalistic performances from them even when the story itself is is you know is very epic and grand it's both large and uh expansive but also intimate yeah it's it's a wonderful film i i find it really does hold up i never really understood the backlash against it, it i think i feel like uh there was, and it was, I'm sure it was completely an American attitude about, you know, these kind of overseas prestige pictures winning over things like, you know, when Goodfellas should have won or, you know, films, you know, what have you. And, and, uh, and I guess people just felt like this was a tarted up museum piece or something like that. And it also could be the fact that, um, Miramax, you know, and, uh, Weinsteins were involved and he, they, they, they had a lot of power in the late nineties, but of course, you know, that name is incredibly tarnished as it should be. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the driving force production wise on this, thankfully is, is not, uh, one of, uh, one of them, it's it was Saul Van Zance, uh, who also mm. gave us Amadeus and One right. Over the Cuckoo's Nest and a lot of other titles. And uh, he was the one who basically just went up to um, 
Andace in person, went to a reading that just happened to be happening near his home and uh, and approached him after the reading and, and asked uh, about optioning the book and or his desire to make a film. And Andace is a film buff. So he you know, instantly knew who he was talking to. It wasn't uh-huh. like, like, who's this guy? Um, you know, he knew him and his work and, and figured it would be in safe hands. And then he proved to be right. And and uh, and both um, Mingela and Zance fought tooth and nail to keep the casting that they wanted. Uh, if, if you go through IMDb trivia, I think there's a list of um, of some of the actors. That initially, I think 20th Century Fox said, oh, we'll produce it, but here's who we want to cast in the film. And I forget, you know, like Johnny Depp as uh, Caravaggio or something like that, oh. you know, like instead of Willem Dafoe and, and like and all these kind of ridiculous casting ideas. And, uh, you know, it's just, you can imagine the disaster it would have been if, if, if they'd made it with Fox. But, you know, they eventually they just pulled out from that and, uh, you know, Miramax came to the rescue, as it were. Yeah. Well, for those who haven't actually seen the film, the story is told in two different time periods, just before the Second World War in North Africa and then in Tuscany in the last months of the war. In the later period, the Count Almazi, played by Ray Fiennes, is the burn victim. His lungs are toast. He's really just hanging on. And his memories of his life before are fragmented, but he's taken care of by a French-Canadian nurse played by Juliette Binoche in an abandoned monastery. They're alone there for a while before another Canadian shows up, played by Willem Dafoe. His name is Caravaggio. And then uh, a mine defusal team, played uh, one of whom is played by Naveen Andrews, that's Kip. So we frequently, in the midst of this, go back to Egypt, where Almazi was part of a team of Brits going on expeditions into the desert, and that's where he meets Catherine and Jeffrey Clifton, uh, played by Kristen Scott Thomas and Colin Firth. Uh, he's a photographer and a British agent. Uh, perhaps it's a little uncertain what he's doing out there. And she's his wife. And though Catherine and Almazi start out very frosty towards each other, they, they get stuck in the desert together overnight and have a, have a very intense, passionate affair. Uh, so you get this romantic epic and romantic tragedy in two very romantic places you you know the backdrop of the desert is extraordinary it's so beautifully shot and then you get this tuscany scenes uh which are you know at the end of the war and things are are just kind of like it's about it almost feels like the uh, the the things that they the illusions of what they didn't know they were in for down there in the desert all these these brits you know doing their expeditions and then the the results of all the pain and suffering and the, the possible healing that could be for some characters at the end. And this is sort of balanced, uh, you know, together in a way that uh, that I thought was so well done. Yeah, I love the, the contrast between the two storylines and the, the, the structure is really well handled, handled in terms of the flashbacks and going back and forth. And, you know, just the, the, the contrast between you know, Julie Binoche and, um, and Ray Fiennes, their, uh, Hannah, and Almazi, they're they're both grieving. She lost someone, uh, you know, a Canadian soldier who died in uh, in North Africa, and you know, of course, he lost Catherine. Um, you know, in the the scenes at the start of the film, even though we don't know right away that that's what's happening, and uh, you know, they, they're both kind of processing their grief in their own kind of ways. Uh, except for one, it's it's more hopeful, and for the other, it's uh, it's kind of you know the end, <laughs> the, the the dawning of the day, as it were, and. Uh, I just love that that connection between their characters, 
and and then of course then you know kind of kip comes into the picture and offers a offers a, a glimmer of hope and i just i i it's funny. It's Naveen Andrews, of course, became even better known from his character on the Lost uh, series. Uh-huh. Uh, but of course, I, you know, Lost had to come out when this film uh, was made, so it was kind of funny. It's like, oh, I forgot it's Naveen Andrews from Lost, and it's kind of nice to to see him uh, in this uh, earlier role again with that um, sort of knowledge of that sort of pretty wonderful performance in a show that kind of went off the rails. But um, yeah, I, I I just felt it. it dealt with those issues of of grief and and loss uh really effectively and really poetically and you know in, in a way that you don't get to see that often in films these days oh yeah absolutely i i really love watching it again and uh and i guess anyone who might be listening who has uh, uh has does, doesn't believe that the english patient is is maybe worth seeing that that it has uh, its reputation you know precedes it is uh is certainly or the bad reputation i guess that it has garnered over time is is that that's ignore that go and watch the movie <laughs> um also want to say uh that funnily enough this is another movie that as le- at least partly set at the fall of Tobruk, which yes. is a, a an actual historical, uh, you know, part of the World War II, the battle where the the Germans took over this town in the desert that uh, that the Brits, I guess, gave up to them. Um, it, it, this is a, a key part of Five Graves to Cairo, a film we talked about. Was it the last episode? The episode before? Two episodes. Ago. And uh, and coming up uh, later on this episode, we're going to talk about Ice Cold in Alex, which is also around the fall of Tobruk. It's kind of a weird theme. <laughs> How many movies are there set around the fall of Tobruk? I think there's actually a movie called Tobruk. Oh, okay. <laughs> which is, just focuses specifically on that event because it was a sort of a major loss prior to a big victory. Um, but it was one of another, like Dunkirk, another one of those grabbing defeat from the jaws of victory kind of events that marked the early days of the war for, for Britain. So uh, it's it's kind of a key event in, in that history, and we'll hear more about it in the next segment. Okay, and on today's Lens Me Your Ears, the film podcast, we're talking about films, a few films set in deserts. And as I mentioned at the top of the show here, we, um, we're certainly watching a lot of sort of historical dramas, war pictures uh, set in North Africa and that region, um, but, uh, you know, about Western characters in that kind of landscape. But we actually did go out and watch a movie that is from uh, uh, the Middle East, actually Iran, and that is a film called Hit the Road which is available to be rented now. Uh, it's from last year. It's written and directed by Panha Panahi, who is the son uh, of Jafar Panahi, who is, of course, the legendary Iranian director who we've spoken about here in our episode about Iranian film. Uh, now, it's evidenced by the younger Panahi's debut uh, that the, and I'll say this, I came up with this this. Uh, Oh, pithy saying that the filmmaking reel does not fall far from the projector. Uh, there is something wonderfully askew in the mix with Panahi Jr. I really like this film. It's it certainly has some of the charm and whimsy of his father's films, but uh, it's also quite its own thing. It's a it's a family comedy shot through with broader sort of more profound themes than what might be immediately apparent. So. If you imagine an Iranian take on Little Miss Sunshine, you're at the starting gate. Um, We've got a road trip into the Badlands with an older couple um, played by, again, I will struggle with the pronunciation, but I'm going to give it a shot, Pantia Panahiha and Masan Majuni. 
their adult son, Amin Simiar, who's driving, and he's mostly silent, and an eight-year-or-so-old son, Ryan Saralak, who is not mostly silent. He's quite the opposite. He's quite a force <laughs> of nature, a little demon in the family minivan, which they say is borrowed and as they travel to an uncertain destination. So there's this whole sort of existential uncertainty that we're witnessing about this family driving somewhere. We don't know why. No one is talking about it. If anything, they're talking around it. And uh, the adults have purposefully left their cells behind and are concerned about being followed. They knock down a cyclist who lectures them about honesty and transgression <laughs> while obviously cheating in a race that's taking uh, by taking place along with the, this drive. Um, there's a lot of stops to pee. Uh, so we get hints of what's going on, but what's really happening here? What are they running from? Is Are they dead? Is this a comedic purgatory? Like, I don't know. Uh, Stephen... Um, what, what did you uh, what did you make of this film? I really enjoyed this film. I mean, uh, uh, again, we see the the, the theme here of um, you know uh, we've got a precocious kid like in the mirror and white balloon uh, directed by the father. Yes, um, yeah. Jafar, and uh, you know it, a lot of it takes place in a car, which we've seen not just uh, the Bahanis, but a lot of other directors like to stage films in cars, maybe just because it's convenient and maybe we can. Uh, skirt the authorities, uh, you know, which is always a concern. Obviously, Jafar Bahani has had some uh, issues of late with uh, Iranian authorities, mm-hmm. and it's, it's gotten pretty serious lately. Uh, so uh, there's certain things that are just, you almost come to expect from these films, and yet somehow every time we watch one of these films, it continues to delight and uh, and surprise us because of, because of the focus on character and... Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of collaboration with with the actors in terms of determining, you know, what their characters say and do, and the, there's almost an off the cuff uh, appeal to these films that that kind of keep you uh, keep you on your toes as you watch because you really do not know what's going to happen. And that's certainly the case with this film, uh, and the fact that there is so much humor as well as quite a bit of heartache in the film at the same time, and the fact that it balances those so well in what feels like a fairly improvis- improvisational. Uh, framework uh, is just uh it's, it's a marvel to me that uh that it works as well as it does yeah absolutely and you know it's that balance that the fact the tone is seen so confidently managed despite the fact it it tilts from this very funny stuff to this very serious stuff you know there's this stray dog along for the ride whose name is jesse who may be dying but he seems like the only one in the van who has a name that anyone uses on the regular. No one says anyone has named. No, older brother, little brother, yeah. mom, dad. Uh, and yeah, Jesse's the only, and it's a cute dog. Yeah, too. very cute. Um, but, uh, and then, you know, as we start out in this desert, uh, you know, they're crossing uh, this kind of desolate landscape. And then, of course, we return to it at the end of the film, uh, seemingly with no road at all, just kind of driving over this this flat, you know, sun-baked wasteland. And yet in the middle, uh, when the, the families kind of reach this crisis point, everything takes place in the hills where it's misty and green and there's rivers and, and sheep. And and uh, it's just interesting to see that contrast between the landscapes and to get a feel for a different part of the countryside that we don't, haven't necessarily seen before uh, in the films we've watched from Iran. And and, um, and how the, the, the landscape kind of, like the, the light... Uh, family stuff seems to happen against the desolate backdrop and then when we get to the lush backdrop is when we get the kind of 
more serious uh, familial themes occur. I like that uh, kind of contrast there as well. Yeah, oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and I love the uh, surprising number of references to movies, including 2001, A Space Odyssey, and Batman Begins. Um, <laughs> but you were saying about the, the landscape. I mean, it makes this very solid argument for the beauty of the Iranian landscape. Some of those other movies we watched, we're not, I wasn't convinced that it was that beautiful a country, not the way they were being shot. But in this one, I definitely have that sense. Um, but yeah, it's that, the abutment of contrasts that work so well, the humor and the grief, the past and the future, silence and sound, and a family's love for a child wanting to hold on to him, but knowing that letting him go will make keep him safe. Um, oh, and there's music. There's, <laughs> in the... <laughs> I don't know if I should say this or not, but there is a moment where the film threatens to become a musical yes, about love and loss. Scene. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's great, great stuff. So so Hit the Road is what the film we're talking about. Again, written and directed by Pana Panahi, the son of Jafar Panahi. And uh, yeah, very much worth seeing. And I'm pleased to say I actually had the chance to see it a little earlier this year when we showed it at the Carbon Arc uh, cinema series here in Halifax. Um, now let's move on to an, a film I mentioned earlier called Ice Cold and Alex. This is a war picture, another war picture that um, it didn't quite fit in in our World War II thrillers from uh, a couple of weeks ago, a couple of episodes ago, but um, I always wanted to see it and I'm so glad we had a chance to see it. It's from 1958, directed by J. Lee Thompson, and uh, it's set again in North Africa, 1942. We're joining the players already bruised and battered by war. It's the Brits at Tobruk. And they are evacuating with the German armor advancing. Funnily enough, again, as I mentioned, that's where Five Graves started. <laughs> and uh, so we, we're introduced to Cap Captain Anson, played by a very blonde John Mills, who's he's just barely hanging on. He's leaning heavily on booze for support. He's seen a lot. He's been through a lot. And he's just not in good shape. He's supported by Tom Pugh, played by veteran Harry Andrews. Uh, and they take, they're taking an ambulance across the desert towards Alexandria and taking with them two nurses who missed their ship, played by, played by Diane Clare and Celia Sims. In the desert, they meet a South African soldier, Vanderpoel, played by Anthony Quayle, who's, I don't know, I thought his South African accent was actually pretty good. Yeah, me too. Um, so and we, did, we just saw him playing... Uh, was it Himmler? He was in uh, the, the Eagle Has Landed. That's right. A German officer. That's there. right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so this ambulance that they call Katie has to navigate through dunes full of mines, rocky wastes, mechanical malfunctions, swamps, and mountains of sand, and random trucks full of German troops that they just happen upon. With Anson as navigator, but he's prone to going off half cocked and eventually racked with guilt over a bad decision he makes. It's it's easy to understand how this became a much beloved war picture. Lots of great atmosphere in the black and white cinematography. Shot out actually in the Libyan desert, standing in for Egypt. Of course, they're neighbors, but that makes lots of sense. Uh, and when the director of photography, Gilbert Taylor, gives us close-ups of the actors, they're really effective. It has this kind of intensity that we associate with, like, the French New Wave, but it's really happening here in this film in a way that I was so impressed by. Um, Sims especially is great with a lot of her sort of staring into the camera, um, though I didn't quite buy her almost romance with John Mills. <laughs> if there's one thing in the film I thought was a bit of a stretch, I got, thought that was that was it. Yeah, I guess it's the formula kind of calls for that sort of thing, but uh, it's it's thankfully it, it happens late in the film and you're you know, devoted enough to the characters by that point, you're able to let it go, I guess. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I I did, and uh, I really enjoyed Ice Cold and Alex. I mean, it's as much a survival thriller as it is a war movie with a group of people somehow managing to navigate, you know, this incredible challenge of getting across the land. Um, there were moments I was actually reminded of the wages of fear, that level of oh, suspense, yeah. almost Sisyphean effort to get this 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 vehicle across the desert. Um, and I wanted to mention someone I noticed interesting looking at the IMDb, uh, Eileen Sullivan, who was in charge of wardrobe. Later years, she worked on every Bond movie from Dr. No oh. to You Only Live Twice. And then later than that, she also worked on Empire Strikes Back. That's quite a career. Yeah, absolutely. So she worked on Ice Cold and Alex. And uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm really happy to have finally caught up with this one. Yeah, it's it's one of the real uh, British war adventure classics that whose reputation doesn't really seem to have spread uh, beyond uh, really the English audience. I mean, the, obviously certain film buffs will appreciate it for what it is, but it doesn't have quite the same reputation as something like, but from the same director, The Guns of Navarone, for example. Um, you know, or... Uh, any number, you know, the, the Desert Rats or some of these other films, but um, but it's it holds up so well. It's maybe maybe because of the minimalism of it was just mostly the, the four cast members in the in the the ambulance uh, as it goes across. But uh, but it really you know, it does hold your attention. Each kind of new challenge they come up against uh, is handled with with the appropriate amount of, of tension, and you really do feel it. Whether they're trying to get it up in sand dune or across a minefield. Or what have you, or through the salt marsh, the the, the depression, as they <laughs> sort of ominously call it. Uh, you know, all that stuff is handled really well, and uh, you know, they, and there's something happens early on in the film where you realize that uh, no character is safe, basically. <laughs> and uh, I, I don't want to say too much more about it than that, but but uh, you know, there is a real genuine sense of peril here that I thought that the film exploits very well. Yeah, and I mean, speaking of movie sets and deserts, the uh, locations are amazing in this film like I really felt like I I got a real sense of the place which is what I'm looking for I think with a lot of films uh, where the where it's so important where they are and I really had that feeling from uh, Ice Cold and Alex uh, so and speaking of of, of locations uh, let's talk now about The Passenger from 1975 directed by Michelangelo Antonioni written by Antonioni with Enrico Sania and Mark Peplo uh, now I have I'd seen this movie when I was a teenager. I was a hardcore Jack Nicholson fan when I was a teen, when I was first getting into cinema, and I was interested in seeing as many of his films as were available on VHS because he's, you know, he's he was a big sort of star at the time, and I was fascinated by his restless creativity, his his resistance to doing the same thing over and over again. Uh, I found this one kind of a head scratcher at the time. I think I picked up its sort of existential angst. You know, it's a thriller exploring identity and loneliness, but I found it a bit slow and kind of a puzzle. But seeing it again, I think the film's power is much more apparent. The core of it is a mystery of Nicholson's character, John Locke. He is a successful documentarian working on a film about the post-colonial Civil War politics of a North African country. I don't think it's said where, but it's supposed to be Chad, I believe. Um, Now, he's unable to reach the rebels he was was hoping to interview, and he gets stranded in the desert... He's feeling frustrated and despondent when he returns to his hotel and finds the British man he'd been speaking to earlier in the night. He has passed on. He's dead on his bed. So he looks a little bit like the man in question, and he chooses to exchange identities with him using the man's passport and documents, including his daytimer. And he travels to London, to Munich, and eventually Barcelona, and he finds his former 
former life is kind of trying to harder to shake off than he thought when his unfaithful wife and former colleague both try to track him down or track down this mysterious Brit who might have been the last man to see Locke alive. Of course, it's actually Locke pretending to be the Brit. Um, And then further, Locke starts to piece together the Brit's profession. He was actually an arms dealer selling weapons to the same rebels that Locke was struggling to meet. And then comes into the picture a young architecture student played by Maria Schneider, And uh, yeah, and that's kind of the story, really. The film has no score. It's shot in a way that makes you feel kind of alienated from the characters on screen a lot of the time, but it forces you to try to figure out their motivations. And I think that's what's most compelling here. Why is Nicholson doing this? Why is the character doing this? What is his, his, his intention? And when he's asked, even he doesn't quite have an answer. Yeah, it's just an impulsive thing that, you know, the... The the story he was chasing down is 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 getting the better of him, and this seems to be a way out. You know, from, from rather than giving up on his assignment, if he can just pretend to be dead and pretend to be somebody else and see where that, you know, because obviously he's a journalist, he's got that natural inquisitiveness, but that takes him down a whole other road. It's it's kind of like, it's almost like the, uh, another Antonioni film called La Ventura, uh, which is you know rightly regarded as a as a tremendous classic of its time but at the time at the time that it came out it was uh, derided for being too obscure and too opaque and where a char- main character disappears and nobody knows why and they search for her, but and no explanations ever given this is kind of like the same story but from the flip side where we're with the character who disappeared in the view- eyes of the people in his life and they don't know what happened to him or why and it's kind of interesting how it tells a very similar story but from the opposite viewpoint and that whole idea about identity and how quickly you know in the blink of an eye we can lose it if we choose or you know or don't choose or whatever or if it happens against our will it's it's very possible to completely lose you know our sense of who we are and i just uh, love what um, antonio is doing with this film it's certainly a lot more coherent than the film he did previously, uh, Zabriskie Point. Right. Um, and, I think we uh, might have talked about we that. We did. And, on our you know, freak out episode. There's, there's yeah. a desert film for you. But I, <laughs> I mean, I, I enjoy Zabriskie Point for what it is, but it does not necessarily make sense. This at least has more of a through line as, as you know, Nicholson. Again, we don't necessarily understand his motivations completely, but it is interesting watching him kind of adapt to this other life and try to follow it through. Uh, as best he can with that daytimer and with the clues that he finds along the way. Yeah, it's um, it's such a strange film in a way because it's it's very much this kind of style, this existential uncertainty, but it's within the package of a genre picture. And that's what I think I enjoyed so much about it. Um, and I really love that Nicholson, who even at, in 1975, he was a huge Hollywood star. He'd been in Chinatown, he'd been in Five Easy Pieces, and uh, he completely, you know, plays against any kind of type. I mean, he just he just is this mysterious character who doesn't really say very much, and he just walks around, and we just follow him walking around from place to place. Um, he's kind of rudderless, and it's, uh, yeah, I mean, of course, he discovers it's never as simple as what he thinks it's going to be in terms of letting go of your former life. But, yeah, uh, yeah. And, and he still has that, that Jack Nicholson charisma, even though he's, there's, he's just kind of wrapped in ennui through the whole film, but you can't deny the power of his personality, even as he's playing it down. And I guess it's just to his credit that he always chose to work with interesting auteurs uh, at this point in his career. Anyway, people like, you know, Polanski, Milos Forman and, 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 and so on. And, uh, you know, Bob Raffleson, who obviously was one of his earliest creative partners. So, uh, you know, before he was 
really cashing in and playing the Joker and things like that later in his career here. You know, he, he seems to really treasure his artistic integrity by working on interesting projects. And, and I feel like this holds up pretty well. Welcome back to Lends Me Your Ears, a look at films set in the desert. It's summer. Why not look at some hot films uh, that are even hotter than what we're going through and, <laughs> and uh, pretty much the, some of the sweatiest movies you'll ever see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What? Who was it? That, it, was, that, it was on Cheers. It was like Cheers, the very right. first episode of Cheers. And, uh, you know, with Cliff, the know-it-all, they're having a bar argument over what's the sweatiest movie. And somebody says Alien. And then somebody, I'm trying to remember what another film that comes up, maybe some Western or something like that. And then somebody says Cool Hand Luke, and they decide that Cool Hand Luke is, in fact, the sweatiest movie ever made. But That makes sense. I think some of these would would qualify for sure, especially the next one that we're going to look at, Flight of the Phoenix, uh, directed by Robert Aldrich uh, Aldrich from 1965. Of course, Aldrich was uh, known for kind of manly adventure-type movies and action films of the time but you know he also made some some more sensitive films like the killing of sister george and of course uh whatever happened to baby jane the the classic gothic uh i guess gothic horror film if you want with betty davis and joan crawford uh you know he was a a pretty versatile director but given like a big meaty actiony kind of premise whether it's uh something like kiss me deadly the ultimate hard-boiled detective movie or or vera cruz a very tough western with uh gary cooper uh and dirty dozen yeah well yeah definitely the dirty dozen and it's uh which he made uh, immediately after flight of the phoenix uh you know he, he could handle the that kind of uh subject matter and this uh in fact dirty dozen was the film he made after flight of the phoenix i always thought uh this one came later but in fact uh this movie about a uh a misfit bunch of uh i guess oil workers whose oh. plane goes down in the desert an all-male cast an all-male cast uh very dirty dozen he uh this was a huge hit and allowed him to make the dirty dozen uh which was a you know a big expansive uh, european production but this is uh certainly it was a, a difficult production but uh, a little more small scale than the dirty dozen given its in fact it only has like you know one sort of major location but essentially the the crew uh you know with uh in a plane piloted by uh jimmy stewart james stewart is frank towns an experienced uh pilot who's kind of whose career has seen better days as a flyer. You know, basically flying flying oil workers around the desert isn't really uh, what he got into the piloting game for. And, and Richard Attenborough is his uh, navigator, Lou, and they hit a sandstorm. Uh, Frank Towns is a bit cocky. He's got a bit of a chip on his shoulder, and he thinks he can uh, he can navigate his way either around or over or through the sandstorm. And, uh, well, nature has other plans. And so so basically what happens is, is uh, the plane goes down, and uh, not everybody makes it, but the, the survivors have to come up with a plan to get out of the desert because they're off course. Nobody's really looking for them. And uh, they have to use their wits to kind of figure out a way out of this uh, problem. And as it just so happens, uh, uh, kind of a, a misfit uh, German guy played by Hardy Kruger, uh, Dorfman, uh, thinks he's got a plan that uh, where they can salvage enough stuff from the down plane to Make a new plane uh, that will uh, with using just one of the one working engine, and that will get them at least to the next kind of oasis where they can, you know, get the supplies they need to survive and a ride back to civilization, as it were. Uh, and uh, if only it were that simple. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, there's obviously going to be some clashes of egos along the way. Uh, towns, uh, you know, Jimmy Stewart's playing uh, kind of a more 
unlikable character than most people think of him as. I mean, certainly in some of the Anthony Mann westerns, he plays a tough, hard-bitten veteran who uh, bumps heads with the other characters, and he's kind of in that mode here. He's not entirely unlikable, but he does uh, tend to be more stubborn than he ought to be in terms of his own survival. And and it's a kind of push and pull between all the characters that makes this film uh, the classic that it is. Yeah, well, I don't know that I liked it as much as all that. Um, I like the cast, obviously. Um, Towns, you know, Navigator Lou, played by Richard Attenborough, he's really good in this. Mm. Uh, Peter French and Ronald Fraser as the two Brits, military men. I like them. Kruger is great. A um, couple of Americans, including uh, Ernest Borgnine and George Kennedy. Uh, you know that they, these are all like quality. Uh, character actors from the era uh and and they're watchable uh but i didn't find there was a lot of suspense you know they've got plenty of water and food so it's really just a group of men sitting under a tarp in the shade in the of the fuselage you know it might as well have been a a play um but at a certain point a couple of characters wander out into the desert and then jimmy stewart's character he feels responsible he's dealing with a lot of guilt for having crashed this plane which he may have made a bad mistake in 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 not returning back and he feels bad about that uh and i i gotta say i just felt that stewart was kind of one note here it's like someone doing a jimmy stewart impersonation <laughs> as the grizzled old embittered codger uh fortunately everyone around him is great especially attenborough as i mentioned uh, and then it becomes interesting when kruger and stewart um you know, and 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 uh, and Towns, uh, Kruger and Stewart, I guess, yeah, the actors are are chewing on each other the way, uh, you know, and then one of the British soldiers clearly hates the other. There's this theme of obsolescence being outmoded by new technology and new ideas, and I appreciated that story, and I appreciated, I guess, Kruger's character's discipline and, uh, you know, and I guess unsentimental attitude versus Stewart's realism, uh, and then, you know, themes of male leadership and pride. Uh, but I just felt that there, it was overlong and a melodrama with a lot of men yelling into each other's faces. <laughs> yes, there was a lot of yelling. By the end, the exhaustion being delivered pretty convincingly by the actors, I was starting to feel myself. And I think also part of the problem is I'd just seen Ice Cold and Alex, which is also a survival of the desert movie. And while it that isn't a perfect film, I thought it was head and shoulders more engaging than this one. And it delivers suspense and characters I ended up caring about a lot more than this group. It's also possible that I'm just maybe tired of seeing an entire cast of white dudes, um, which is <laughs> which is one thing that the sequel that we're going to talk about did well improved on. Oh, the remake. Oh, yes, sorry, the, the remake. Yes, not a, it's not a <laughs> sequel because it's the same title. Though in, in the same this story. in this day and age, uh, you know, well, well, we could talk about Shaft. How many shafts are there? <laughs> and they're not they're sequels, but well, there's remakes. well, there's well, there's the original, and it there's, had two sequels, and then yes. there's. There's Shaft. There's with a sort of later sequel. Sam Jackson. Yeah. And then there's Shaft later. Yeah. Anyway, it's it, you start. It's hard to keep track after a while. Uh, anyway, uh, yeah. I mean, I was there more you wanted to say about the original Flight of the Phoenix? Well, I, I like the characterizations. I, I do like the supporting cast. Ian Bannon is a favorite character actor of mine, and he's quite a lot of fun as the kind of crow with the wicked sense of humor here. I, I like him a lot. Uh, some people may remember he was in George's Island that was shot here in Halifax. Oh, yeah. uh, the the bit with Sergeant Watson, Ronald Frazier as Sergeant Watson, does not make a lot of sense to me. That is that was sort of the weakest point. Uh, you know his clash with uh, with Peter Finch's Captain Harris. He, I you know he, I guess he just doesn't want to be a soldier anymore. He doesn't want to follow orders. But I felt that that was handled a little uh, oddly, and that we don't really understand his motivations for his odd 
behavior throughout the film. Uh, and then he has a hallucination that gives us the one female presence in the film yeah. in the form of a, a belly dancer and uh. a hallucination. Yeah, that's... <laughs> So that that's that is kind of a low point, but uh, you know that part didn't work for me. And, and Ernest Borgnine's kind of nutty cop character—I just don't understand why that character's in the movie, really. Although, as much as I love seeing Ernest Borgnine, you know, he's just kind of there to to be a you know fly in the ointment, I guess. But uh, but uh, then we get the remake uh, that came along in uh, two thousand and four. Yeah. Directed by John Moore, not, not a director of any great renown. Uh, he also made a remake of The Omen that is probably better left. Yeah, not <laughs> forgotten. Great. Yeah, uh, but uh, but this wasn't entirely without its pleasures, and, and uh, I, I think I liked it more than I thought I was going to. Yeah, it's written by Scott Frank and Edward Burns, who are are notable uh, screenwriters. Um, so besides the diversity in now in the cast, the remake also clips along at a lot better pace than the first movie. It has some terrific cinematography in the desert. This time it's set in the Gobi, though shot in Namibia. And there's some of the sandstorm CGI is a bit ropey, yeah. you know, but that's also the era. Um, there is some smartly chosen music from Spencer Davis Group to Massive Attack. I like that. Uh, Dennis Quaid plays Towns, the pilot this time, and the communication of his guilt and sense of responsibility is maybe a little more lightly trod. Um, but I appreciated the presence of Hugh Laurie as the company man. It's, you know, uh, this discussion of whether or not the company would actually spend money to send out a search party for this lost plane uh, and whether their lives are worth it to the oil company. That's an interesting kind of angle that, that this is kind of a criticism of the corporate mentality uh, that's going on with this particular film. Uh, Miranda Otto is a fine addition to the, the cast of Crash Victims, uh, or, well, not victims, but survivors. And Giovanni Ribisi plays the Kruger role. And he's pretty great, too, though I wonder sometimes if he's doing maybe a Brando impersonation. Um, uh, and then, you know, I like Tyrese Gibson as much as the next guy, but his character has none of the conflict or depth of the Attenborough character, even though that's sort of who he's playing. Um but yeah, I mean, I I, do, I thought this film did a pretty good job recreating the growing animosity between the characters. Um, though I did prefer the line, "Who is the authority here?" over "Who's who's the boss of everyone?" <laughs> <laughs> In terms of like screenwriting adaptations for the present day, I thought that was not so awesome. Um, some of the dialogue does not hold a candle to what the dialogue was in the previous film. Quaid gives a very hokey speech late in the film that undermines the tension between him and the Rabisi character. Um, and uh, I liked that in the original, Stuart had to sort of forsake his leadership at one point. Um, you know, all he does in the end, he, but he flies the plane, and that's, of course, very important. Um, and a, another thing I thought the original did maybe a little better was convince us of the intensity of the heat and the impossibility of getting anywhere on foot. Um, yeah, but I mean, you know, it's in terms of like, uh, uh, big, big budget remakes. I didn't think it was too bad. I'd, I'd say that it was, this was actually a fun double feature to sort of watch the two back to back. Yeah, it, it was. There's enough positive stuff in the, the remake that I, I didn't regret watching it. Uh, as you say, they, they spend quite a bit less time on the kind of construction of the new plane out of the old one. They don't devote as much time to it as the original does and I think that's to its credit uh Dennis Quaid's character starts out as a bit of a caricature as the hard-nosed uh you know like he's got a bigger role here where he's known as shut him downtown because uh you know he's he's more active aside from just being a pilot for hire he's kind of actively involved 
in the uh, the oil company plan to shut down this this well that's not mm. not producing the one that uh, Miranda Ott is running. So that actually gives them a reason to be at at, at odds and to kind of butt heads throughout the film. So uh, that sort of works. But he's such a hard nose that when he softens and and agrees to go out into the desert after one of the um, one of the crew members who uh, decides to try and go out on his own, that doesn't wash <laughs> for me uh-huh. because it seems like. I don't think this version of that character would do that. I think he'd say, that, you know, tough luck to him. And, you know, and, and it's not like anybody's really trying to guilt him into it either. He just decides to do it. And what we know of the character up to that point, it doesn't really make a lot of sense compared to Jimmy Stewart. At least we can, you know, buy it a little more with his character when he goes after Cobb. But, um, but you know, the, the threat of the, the Raiders uh, in, in this film seems a little more real than it does in the original. Mm. But then when they come back later in the film, uh, that is not <laughs> quite so believable. And that, that, yeah. that kind of, you know, and it's right, right at the big climax. And so that left a bit of a sour taste in my mouth, uh, you know, right as the film was coming to its, its big climax. Uh, so that, that may have colored my feelings about it a little bit. But, but I do like some of the characterizations and, and uh, some of the new character interactions for sure. Yeah, and the, um, the original had this great final scene, uh, not to spoil it, but, you know, obviously some characters do make it to a place and they all, you know, jump into this pool of water. And it's just, it's, it's a great moment. Uh, whereas at the end of, of the remake, we get a collection of photographs showing the you know the future yeah. lives of the people who were involved and that is especially that's lame. very cheesy very cheesy and the uh and i do say i i i think i well not think i i think i prefer the hardy kruger uh version of the character of the engineer who comes up with the plan more than rabizi i mean rabizi plays him as almost like a batman supervillain in a way uh <laughs> and and the, the reveal of the truth about their background i thought was uh i enjoyed it much more in the original than uh in the remake it it seemed to be uh, you know, the, it, there was a kind of a nice deflation of things in the original and in the remake. It's, I don't know, it's not handled terribly well, I thought. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I, I mean, I, I didn't love the original, but I, I could see where it's just a better movie in some ways than than the remake. But uh, but yeah, it's a fun to compare the two. And sometimes sometimes it's just a matter of like the, taking the pleasure of seeing a, a different adaptation and what, what choices they make and what choices they don't. And then, you know, smashing them together. And that's it for this edition of Lens Me Your Ears. I hope you have a, a nice, quenching, refreshing beverage after all this dry talk about desert sands and sandstorms and blazing heat and sand flats and so on. And, Perhaps and, like uh, Carlsberg, like the yes, end of Ice Golden Alice. A, a nice Carlsberg would go down real well right about now. And uh, and we, uh, we, we hope you enjoyed that and seek out some of these films. Uh, a couple of them are on Hoopla and some of them are on, I think, uh, English Patient is on Prime and, and, and elsewhere. And and uh, Hit the Road, was I found it on Apple. Uh, I think that might be the only place you can get it at this point, Apple TV. Um, but but they're all out there waiting for you to watch them, and I hope you enjoy them. My name is Stephen Cook, and uh, you can find me on Twitter at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. Uh, my name is Karsten Knox. Uh, you can find me on Twitter uh, on my uh, blog name, Flaw in the Iris. I'm also, I've got a new uh, Instagram account for my blog as well that you can you can follow me if you like, because I'm going to TIFF. So, uh, you know, if you want to see my videos and photographs from the Toronto International Film Festival in September, you check out me, uh, Flaw in the Iris, on Instagram. You're going to Insta? I'm going to Insta, oh. I've decided, yeah. Insta fun. <laughs> uh, we also have a Facebook page and a Twitter account, so you can uh, contact us through either of those. And, of course, we want to thank the folks at CKDU 88.1 FM who air us 
every other Tuesday at 5 p.m. And, of course, whose studio we use to record our musings. And the folks at the Village Sound, of course, who put the music on and make us sound so wonderful. Thanks to everyone for getting the show up and running and up on the air and the podcast platforms. And we will see you at the bar next week. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production. 